and welcome to another edition of Morrison's Meanderings. Today, we're going to begin a two-part series on restoring trust after infidelity. This is part one. Ashley sat across the table from Beth, dropping her eyes, folding her arms across her chest, and keeping her voice low, her cheeks flushed. I really doubt you know what it's like, she said. With Randy, at least you have one of the good guys. Anyone can see that. What do you mean, Beth asked, one of the good guys? Well, I doubt he committed adultery against you after you had given birth to his two kids. I wouldn't think he'd be an elder if he had, Ashley shot back with an angry glare. I just don't see how I'll ever trust him again. I mean, how can I be sure he won't do this again? Trust. When adultery of any kind enters a marriage, one of the hardest issues that couples encounter is how to rebuild trust. Infidelity is among the most painful sins we face. Married men or women who learn that their spouse has been unfaithful usually experience varying degrees of shock, shame, isolation, guilt, fear, anger, and distrust. The experience of working through being sinned against by marital unfaithfulness is different for different people, different circumstances. But typically, the injured party plays the news over in their minds repeatedly, and as they do, the shock somewhat dies down. Similarly, the sense of shame usually decreases as the injured party realizes that they need community, they need support. As they connect with a good friend or a pastor or a counselor, isolation is often reduced. Guilt normally subsides as the offended party realizes that even if there are ways they failed their marriages, they didn't cause their spouse's unfaithfulness and could not have prevented it. Fear, whether legitimate concerns about the future or sinful distrust of God, and anger, whether righteous or sinful, tend to come and go over time. But offended spouses who agree to follow the Lord to work on their relationship after adultery often find that the hardest thing to overcome of all of these is the lack of trust that they feel towards the one who has betrayed them. One reason it's so hard is that many injured parties try to restore trust too quickly without understanding all that is involved in reestablishing an appropriate level of trust in a spouse. When people think their real need is to rebuild trust, it is usually better to start with a far broader question. What biblical steps are involved in reconciling a marriage that has been damaged by infidelity? We're going to address that larger question in two parts. This first part today will involve what is normally the first three to six months after some measure of unfaithfulness has come to light. That part will set the tone for the couple as they work out the current struggles of their relationship. The second part, which we'll address next time, generally involves somewhere between six and 18 months, a period that either solidifies or diminishes the restoration of that marriage. Let's start with what is needed following marital unfaithfulness coming to light. The first thing necessary is repentance towards God on the part of the offender. The word repentance, metanoia, 
means a change of mind. Essentially, it means I agree with God that my way was wrong and his way is right. In repentance, a change of mind results in subsequent movements away from the sin towards God and towards the person who's been offended, all as a result of the Holy Spirit's conviction of their sin. Real repentance is in no way dependent upon the response of the offended spouse. A repentant offender needs to base the fullness of their repentance not on the basis of trust or forgiveness on the part of the one offended. My repentance must be based solely on what I know to be true and right in God's sight about my sin. The first desire in repentance is a clear conscience and restored fellowship with God. Psalm 51 is a great uh, piece of scripture to look at here because in Psalm 51, we see David who has sinned, who has been found out. It has been involving the incidents of adultery and he moves towards restored fellowship with God. Unfortunately, in adultery, most offenders repent only after being found out. Because of that, many offended partners have good reason to question the sincerity of the apparent repentance. Is he showing repentance because he was caught? Is she humble only because she can't hide her immorality? So the first thing then is just this idea of repentance. That's the first thing that's needed if we're going to restore a relationship where there has been unfaithfulness. The second thing necessary is the offender's confession to the Lord. We could look at 1 John 1, 9, where it tells us that um, if we sin, we confess to God and that he forgives us of all of our, of our sin and of all unrighteousness. He is because of his faithfulness, he forgives us. And, and that is a classic verse that we might use to talk about confession. Another is Proverbs 28, 13, that says, if, if a person confesses and forsakes his sin, the Lord will restore him. Uh, that idea of forsaking the sin in addition to confessing it. Confession can be said to be part of repentance, but it's actually distinct from it. Repentance is the internal Holy Spirit-inspired change of mind from sinful thought, behavior, and justification to the conviction that this behavior is wrong. And whatever attitudes, thoughts, behaviors, and words which would rightly follow genuine repentance. Confession is an offender reflecting that first stage of repentance by naming her or his sin to the Lord and saying the same thing that God says about it. Confession is a, a word in Greek, homologeo, which just means to say the same thing. So what we have is if there's going to be a restoration, if there's going to be a healing towards trust in a relationship, the very first thing that happens is a person who is an offender needs to repent, meaning they need to do business with God on the inside where they recognize something's wrong. And the second thing they need to do is to confess to God, being able to say the same thing that God does. By the way, confession is not a quick, general, sorry about what I did. Confession is more specific, like God, I willfully turned aside from your commandment to be faithful to my wife. I lied to my wife when I lay with her, whenever I was already taking someone else into an intimate relationship. I stole when I took someone else's wife from him and someone else's mom from them. In doing these things, I broke the trust, security, and beauty of our marriage, and I opened the door for the enemy to attack us and for your name to be discredited. I do not deserve it. 
but I ask that because of Jesus dying for me, you would forgive all these sins and cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. I believe that you will because you've said you will. In, in recognition of sin, this confession, this confession is an express of sorrow or regret to God, along with a request to pardon. Uh, consider James 4, 7, and 8 as an example of this. In James 4, he tells us to cleanse your hands, you sinners. But he doesn't stop there. The cleanse your hands, you sinners, is really like the... Uh, the confession part. It's the acknowledgement to God that I'm wrong and I'm bringing my hands before God under the blood of Christ, if you will, and I'm washing my sins in the blood of Christ. I'm remembering that he has cleansed me. So cleanse your hands, you sinner. But it doesn't stop there. It says, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why does it say that? Well, that's really kind of the if you will, it's, the, it's almost like the back end of repentance. The initial, the front side of repentance is realizing what I've done is dishonored God. And, and I am moved by that to move towards my relationship with God and towards the other person. The next step is the confession, the acknowledgement to, that, to, to God first of what I've done and naming it. But then the next part is the fact that I'm actually also dealing with my heart. Uh, when it says purify your hearts, you double-minded, it means when I tell God I'm sorry about something, I can really be sorry. I can really be convinced. But the likelihood of my going back to that sin has to do with my double-mindedness. So have I purified my heart? Have I said, God, there is this thing in me that keeps propelling me in this direction, which is a dishonesty to you and a dishonesty to me and a dishonesty to the body. God, purify me from the inside. That's the that uh, second part of, of repentance, I think we could say. So we have first repentance and second, we have confession to God. The third thing we have is an apology to the offended spouse. In this, the offender names the sin, both the action and the sinful attitudes underlying the action, and acknowledges and owns the pain that it caused the offended. The apology is like the confession in that it's specific, not general. We don't sin generally in adultery, like, sorry if I hurt you by what I did. We sin very specifically. Adultery is a specific sin against specific promises in the, contest of a, in the context of a very specific relationship. What's more, this apology to the spouse is never done with a demand of a certain response on the part of the offended. It is never, I've said I'm sorry, what more do you want? You've done stuff wrong too, you know. Apology is admitting to the other persons what you've done against them, expressing regret for the pain caused them, and asking for forgiveness. It is also humbly giving them time to work it through. Uh, I've recommended to people that uh, they make a point of looking at either the little book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, uh, or the book Peacemaker, both by Ken Sandy, um, um, because both books have a chapter on confession and forgiveness that is well worth the price of the book. So it's when I do confess to somebody, it's not I'm confessing and then tapping my foot and waiting for them to say, I forgive you. Uh, when I'm confessing, I'm doing it for them. I, I'm, I'm acknowledging my sin before them. Yes, I would like them to forgive me. But, but if I'm sitting around and putting pressure on them, you owe me forgiveness. 
I'm really bringing the confession so that I get something. I'm not recognizing this is about you and I've offended you. You know, John the Baptist spoke of repentance when he said, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. Uh, Zacchaeus, after Jesus said that he was coming to his house, portrayed repentance when he said he would give back four times as much as he had taken from everybody. Uh, while I have no specific teaching on this other than what John the Baptist said and the facts that Jews required restitution when someone had sinned against another person through causing harm to their livestock or through uh, harm to a family member, or anything like that, they would require restitution. I believe that the fourth thing necessary for an offender is to take whatever steps the offended needs them to take within reason to show a commitment to restoring the relationship. This would uh, include things like the offender telling the person that they had the illicit relationship with that it's over. Uh, it would have to do with having no further contact with the person that the person has committed adultery with. It might require moving or switching jobs. Uh, it includes not meeting on the sly or texting to let the other person down gently or trying to help them with the hardship incurred by the change. It usually involves counseling to try to address areas of weakness in the spiritual or marital lives of the couple so that they can be strengthened to help prevent a future recurrence. It might involve at some future point a marriage renewal ceremony to formally put the past behind and to renew the pledges publicly for the future of the marriage. The point in that, after repentance, after confession before the Lord, and after apologizing to the spouse, is that at that point I'm saying now, I want to do whatever I need to do on my part to help make it easier for you to forgive and easier for us to move forward. And I, I want to provide for you whatever that requires. The fifth thing necessary is for the offended person to forgive the offender as much as he himself has been forgiven. Luke 17 shows Jesus saying, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns seven times a day, saying, I repent, forgive him. While I personally doubt the full applicability of this to adultery, for example, if the offending spouse were to go out every day to have sexual relations with someone and then would return and say, I repent, um, I think the main point is clear. Uh, nothing is beyond forgiveness. In Matthew 18, Jesus explains this by the parable of the king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. One man owed the king 10,000 talents, maybe $25 billion, but was forgiven the debt. But he then went out and imprisoned another man who owed him 100 denarii, which would have been 100 days wages, maybe $15,000. Jesus said, we're like the one who owed 10,000 talents to God, and anyone who sins against us is like one who owes 100 denarii. It doesn't mean it's a small debt. $15,000 is nothing to sneeze at or that what the other person did is inconsequential. It means that when we see ourselves stand before God, we have no right to hold their sin against them. If they have repented, if they have confessed, if they have apologized, we are to forgive them. For some people, forgiveness occurs fairly easily. They know their own sin. They know their partner's regret. They extend mercy. For others, forgiveness is very hard. Several common obstacles might stand in the way of some people's forgiveness. One obstacle to forgiveness is the question of whether the person is really repentant. Is there an internal change with God that's taken place? Uh, 
Or are they just saying what they think we want to hear so that they'll get past this little ripple in the relationship? If more is needed, counseling with the pastor, a biblical counselor, experience with cases of adultery might be needed. A second obstacle is the offender's temptation to try to make all this go away quickly. Sometimes the offender is more interested in a quick apology and a quick forgiveness than in restoring the one who was injured by this egregious breach of trust. The offender needs to humbly give room to the offended to work through their hurt and anger and sense of betrayal. The third obstacle to, for the offended uh, forgiving is the offended person's spiritual maturity. They may not know God very well. They may not know the ways of God. They may not know their own sinfulness, so they may see themselves as better than the one who injured them. Or they might be stubbornly unwilling to trust God and obey Him by extending forgiveness. All of that is a matter of personal discipleship, something that a same-sex mature friend from church or a biblically-minded counselor might help with. Sometimes it involves teaching. Sometimes it involves listening and prayer. Sometimes it involves a gentle rebuke. Sometimes it may require all those. A fourth obstacle to forgiving and moving forward is that the offended person often blame themselves for not knowing that it was going on. They chide themselves for their gullibility or their lack of discernment as if they could have kept themselves from being hurt if they had seen what was happening. In reality, it would, it would have hurt anyway, and we're really not supposed to be omniscient. Uh, the last obstacle we'll look at in the, is, is the issue of trust, which is really the or original question that was posed here. Trust is not the same as forgiveness. We can fully forgive someone and yet still not trust them. As others have said, forgiveness is granted, but trust is earned. We think of Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That didn't reestablish a relationship. Uh, or if we look at the example in John chapter 2, where after Jesus turned the water into wine, it says down in, I think, verse 23, that many people believed in him there. But it says Jesus entrusted himself to no man, for he knew what was in man. As, as we say, forgiveness uh, is granted uh, just as a response to God's call. Uh, but trust, trust takes time and trust is earned. Uh, frequently, this is expressed this way. How do I know they won't do it again? And what they often mean behind that is I might be able to get to the point of forgiving if I know I can't get burned again or won't get burned again. There are a few things we have to say about trust. First, the offended person who walks through this with the Lord will go through various stages of trust. Some people experience these stages all at once. Other people feel like each new stage of trust is like a new level of risk. For example, an offended person has to have an element of trust to even talk with the offender. Um, an offended person has to have a level of trust to even live in the same house as the offender. Uh, the offended person has to even have a level of trust if they're going to open up their lives before someone else and consider how to rebuild the relationship. They have already been, um, they've already been betrayed once, and every single time they take a step towards the other person, they re-experience a measure of betrayal. And so each one of these can be a challenge for a person as they go through these stages of trust. The second thing is that the offender also has to do the kind of things that tend to create trust. 
So if you've had a if you've had someone who has committed some form of sexual immorality, it could be pornography that comes to light, it could be physical adultery, it could be emotional adultery, it could be a number of things that actually break trust in the marriage. Uh, a person has to first repent and do business with God. They second have to confess to God, acknowledge uh, the, the sin, and, and be certain to prepare themselves for a restore, restoring the relationship with the person, assuming that they're ready to follow the Lord in that regard. It involves confessing to them, uh, recognizing that uh, what they have done is something that has injured this person, and that's an appropriate uh, step for them to take. But beyond that, beyond those three things and trying to build towards this um, trust, they also have to do things that we're going to talk about more next time. We'll just talk briefly about them right now, having to do with what do you do to help build trust as the one who betrayed the trust in the first place? Uh, for example, if the offender was caught, that is, they didn't come clean on their own, but they only confessed after being found out, trust is harder to win. The offended person might understandably think you'd still be there doing it if you hadn't been caught. Here are some things an offender can do. One, offer to the offended person the right to ask any questions they wish for a period of time. I usually recommend to people no more than 30 days and give entirely honest answers. At the same time, offended people need to remember that sometimes the questions they have are for information they either don't need or that can be a stumbling block to you later. For example, you might ask about the places that they would meet with the person they were unfaithful with. And if they told you we met at Martin's parking lot, Every time from that point that you come into Morton's parking lot, you may well think about that. You have to ask yourself the question when you're going to ask questions, is this going to help me? Does this provide something I need to know in order to forgive? Or is this just some form of curiosity or uh, some sort of anger speaking? Um, remember, again, I've said this before, but the offender, the one who has injured the other party, has no rights to expect or demand anything from your spouse. You are the guilty one. You are requesting mercy. How can I, who is guilty before a judge, demand of the judge how the judge handle my case? Remove yourself. Uh, another thing you can do, which I've already alluded to once, remove yourself from contact with the person, not only physical contact or personal contact, but emailing or texting. A number of times that I've seen unfaithfulness, people end up... Uh, uh, changing their number because they don't want any access. They block a person. Uh, there are a number of steps that people need to take to be able to break off that contact. Um, it might require changing a job. It might require changing a church. Um, but reality is marriage and family are worth more than those things. It is entirely appropriate when rebuilding a relationship to look at the areas of dissatisfaction that were there already prior to the adultery, but they must not be combined with the adultery. For example, as if his time on the road because of his job caused you to be unfaithful, because the reality is his time on the road may have made you more lonely. It may have made it harder for you to be at home, but it doesn't make you be unfaithful or to say that her excessive weight made you more tempted. The reality is her excessive weight may be an issue to talk about possibly, but it can't ever cause your immorality. 
So if you are going to recognize there are other issues, it's good to be able to address those, but not if you tie them to the adultery as if it somehow was the cause. Because the cause of my adultery, um, James 1 tells us that we sin when we're tempted by our own lusts. And that lust gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. So lest I think that somehow someone else caused my sin, I need to remember what the Bible says. Uh, I think about a 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that there's no temptation taken hold of you, but such as is common to man. And God won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation provide a means of escape so you can endure it. When he says things like that, he's saying no one has to sin. I've made ways out for everybody. So I have to make sure that when I'm addressing any issues in my marriage, that I'm not somehow tying the issues in the marriage uh, to uh, making them a causative relationship for my, for my unfaithfulness. Um, as a result, when it comes to rebuilding trust, we must move away from thinking that other people can completely remove our vulnerability to being hurt. You remember I said a moment ago that um, in John 2.23, it said that Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he knew what was in man. Um, it's interesting because that particular verse is in contrast, and, and I, I hope you're able to hear this difference. That verse in John 2.23 is the direct opposite, if you will, of 1 Peter chapter 2.23. And 1 Peter chapter 2.23 says that speaking about all that Jesus had gone through, all that God the Father had permitted him to undergo, um, a whole laundry list of all that God allowed. And he said, but he kept on entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. In other words, get this. Jesus completely entrusted himself to a father who let him be crucified for sins he never committed. He trusted that God, but he wouldn't entrust himself to people who believed on him for doing a miracle. Why? Well, because Jesus knew what was in man and he knew it was in the father. He knew that what was in the father meant he, he was entirely worthy of trust, but what's in man means he's not entirely worthy of trust. So when we talk about rebuilding trust, there is an element to which rebuilding trust is a good thing. Personally, I believe it can be people can make too much of it. They can get to the point where they, instead of trusting God, are trying to find, is there enough justification for me putting my entire trust in my wife again or in my husband again? And the answer is no. But the answer is, but can they address what they've done wrong? Yes. Can they do it without excuses? Yes. Can they acknowledge it before God? Yes. Can they bring forth fruit in keeping with their repentance? That is, doing things that are consistent with what they have said? Yes. Can they ask for my forgiveness and acknowledge the way that they've hurt me and be open and honest about it? Absolutely. Um, so when it comes to rebuilding trust, I believe that rather than trying to find some quick way of saying, you're not going to hurt me again, what's more important for me is to realize, have they addressed the sin? Have we gone before the Father together? Have we named what these things are? Have we asked for forgiveness, provided forgiveness? And then have we begun to take the steps that can help us rebuild a relationship of trust? And we're going to spend a little more time on that next time. When these steps have been done, we can rebuild a measure of trust. 
and over time, that trust will grow. But the offended spouse does best to not attempt to spend great energy focusing on reestablishing trust as if that's the end-all be-all. It'll drive you crazy. Uh, and what's more, you'll tend to drive the former offender crazy because many times I've seen when people are trying to reestablish trust, they sort of start acting like a professional Holy Spirit, almost like they're hovering over the person to make sure you don't sin again. And if you're doing that, it actually, it actually works against you and it works against them. They're going to stand and fall before the Lord. Uh, if you're going to take a risk in rebuilding this relationship that they could hurt you again, you realize, Lord, I'm committing myself. I'm forgiving them. I'm moving forward. We're taking all the steps we know to take. But, um, but Lord, I don't have any way to ultimately control it. Um, otherwise, I'll become obsessed with whether or not this person is going to sin again. My confidence has to be in the Lord who sustains me and who directs my steps, not in man. Uh, next time uh, in Morrison's Meanderings, uh, we'll follow this up to ask more questions, not of what can be done in the first one or two or three or four or five months like we've been focusing on today, but more what can be done maybe over the next year to rebuild a healthy kind of a relationship so that trust can grow and so that a healthy um, relationship can actually replace an injured relationship. I've seen couples, and I believe in the Lord, this is his intent, that a person can actually have a stronger marriage following infidelity than they did before. That's not to say that we wish infidelity would happen. We're just saying that God is able to take, much like a broken bone, when that broken bone heals, many times that broken bone is actually stronger in the area of healing. So thanks very much, and God bless you.